Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, Behind the Knife listeners. Absite 2021 is drawing nearer and nearer, and I hope everyone's studying is going well. Today's episode is brand new for the 2021 season. It's a short, quick hit sort of episode on biostatistics. I'm Michael Vu, and with me is Megan Akashup. This episode is based on a new chapter included in the latest edition of our Behind the Knife Absite review book, which you can find on Amazon. Also, if you have time after the episode to fill out a quick one-minute survey, please find that link in our show notes. It'll really help us out. All right, let's hop into this episode. Let's just start with some basics, normal distributions. Uh, when we talk about a normal distribution, uh, what we're talking about is, is a sample of data points that, that form a symmetric bell-shaped curve, right? So if we say that we're looking at uh, all the data points that are within one standard deviation of the mean, what percent of the sample is that? So that's usually about two thirds, so 68%. Exactly. And what about two standard deviations? So when you get to two standard deviations, it's about 95%. Mm-hmm. And, and three? And three is about, you're getting very close to 100%, but it's about 99.7%. Great, great. Vu, when I think about the two standard deviations, 95%, does it make you think of anything? Yeah, it kind of does. I mean, they say that the COVID vaccine is 95% effective. So I suppose you'd want to be within two standard deviations of the mean for people who get the COVID vaccine. Um, And uh, when I get my abside score back, I want to see that I am above two standard deviations. Uh, All right. So let's talk about errors. So sometimes uh, you'll be asked to differentiate between type one and type two errors. So what is a type one error? So type one error is similar to calling it a false positive. So um, it's where you uh, assume that there is actually a difference between two groups that you're studying when there actually isn't a difference. Phrased another way, they usually say where you... um, Sorry, where you reject the null hypothesis. Um, That's the other way that it's phrased sometimes. How do I, if I wanted to prevent that in my studies, how would I do that? Right. So the 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 uh, the classic thing that scientists do is to set a standard rigorous p value, typically 0.05 or less. This is like the scientific standard these days, um, and it's also known as the alpha level. So the alpha level is formally defined as the probability of a type one error occurring. So when we set a p value of 0.05, we're we're um, tr- trying to basically reduce the probability of a type one error to less than five percent. Um, okay, and and what is a type two error then? And and what does beta mean? We're talking about type one errors and alpha. What is the type two error and what does beta mean? So type two error is the false negative. So that's when you're saying that there is no difference between the two groups that you've studied when there actually is a difference. Um, and so 
beta is the probability of actually having a type two error occurring. And this is closely associated with power. Right. Can you tell me more about power then? So um, by powering our studies to a certain sample size before we actually perform the study, um, this actually helps us um, with our beta and avoiding the type two errors. So power is defined as one minus the beta. So it's the probability that the type two error does not occur. Right, right. And typically, um, when we're doing power analyses um, before we're about to do our experiments, we, we often set our power at 80%. So we want one minus the beta to be 0.8, uh, the number often used for power analyses. Okay, let's recap. Type 1 error, false positive. You reduce false positives by setting a rigorous alpha, commonly P equals 0.05. Type 2 error, false negative. Reduce these errors by powering your study to a sufficient sample sample size, power equals one minus beta and is commonly set at 0.8. Let's move on to some common statistical tests that you are uh, often asked about um, in my experience on the app site. So first, what is a t-test versus a chi-square? Both very common tests. They both compare groups to see if the groups are statistically different from one another. But when would you use one versus the other? So these are the ones that I have to review every time, thankfully being in the lab helped with this, but the difference between the two. So if you, if the measure you are using is numerical, so like you're comparing BMIs between two groups of people, then you use the t-test. If what you're measuring is categorical variable, variables, so did this person live or die? Are they male or female? Things like that. Um, then you would want to use the chi-square test. Um, I was also going to ask, do you, do you have any ways, Vu, that you remember that easily? I mean, one way to think about it, you know, you think about chi-square, you can literally think about a two-by-two two square grid. That's the kind of table you use to visualize a simple chi-square test, such as comparing open versus laparoscopic groups in terms of whether the patient is alive or dead. Only a categorical variable like alive or dead would make sense in such a two-by-two two grid. You can't fit the range of numerical values like BMI in a two-by-two two grid. So chi-square is like a two-by-two two square, categorical variables only. I think that helps. So um, what about the difference between doing an unpaired versus a paired t-test? Yeah, so, so you use an unpaired t-test if the two groups that you're comparing are unrelated or independent. I, I know that's confusing, but uh, I think an example is, is best used here. So for instance, if you measured the BMI of a bunch of people who got gastric bypass versus a bunch of people who got a lap sleeve, then you would use an unpaired t-test. The unpaired t-test would tell you if there's a difference between gastric bypass and lap sleeves in terms of you know, the, the BMIs. Uh, um, afterwards. You use a paired t-test if you want to compare two measurements from related groups. And this most often comes up when you take repeated measures from each individual subject. So for instance, if you measured people's BMI before they got gastric bypass and then measured it 12 months after they got bypass, then you would want to use a paired t-test to tell you whether or not gastric bypass significantly changed each individual person's BMI. Great. And so what if you wanted to do a t-test and you uh, were trying to compare more than two groups? Right. So a t-test can only compare two groups. Um, if you needed mul multiple group comparisons, you would use ANOVA or analysis of variance. 
All right, well, uh, let's move on to study designs. Um, sometimes you're asked about cohort studies and case control studies. Um, first of all, cohort studies and case control studies, are these observational studies or are they experimental studies? And what's the difference? These are observational studies. So you just enroll the patients, watch what happens to them as you collect the data that pertains to your research question. So for example, we measure what people's diets are and also record over time whether they got gallbladder disease. Right, and that's different from experimental studies, um, such as a randomized controlled trial. In an experimental study, the researchers are actively changing something for one of the groups and then measuring what the effect of that change is compared to a control group. Um, okay, so what is the difference between a cohort study and a case control study? This can get kind of confusing. Yeah, and they always ask questions about this. So in a cohort study, you're looking at certain kinds of exposures that occurred to the patient so using our example of biliary disease, maybe the exposure that we're interested in is someone eating a lot of fatty foods. So then we look and compare the frequency of gallbladder disease like cholecystitis among the people who had that exposure versus those who did not. By contrast, a case control study works kind of in reverse. So you have your cases and you have your control. So you've identified people who actually have the outcome. So they already have cholecystitis and you're comparing it to a similar group who does not have cholecystitis. You then go back in time and look at whether or not they had the exposure. So case control studies are always retrospective studies in that sense. Right. And, and something important to note is that prospective cohort studies uh, can give you relative risks as well as odds ratios, because when the data is collected prospectively, you have a sense of the prevalence of disease. Um, and typically, relative risk is what we're most interested in. On the other hand, case control studies can only give you odds ratios. And odds ratios don't tell you about the prevalence of disease, because you're starting um, a priori by identifying um, cases, people who have actually had the disease. So Vu, that's actually a really important point because I've seen that multiple times where you're kind of given a question stem and you're supposed to connect the dots between the two types of studies. So cohort studies are usually paired up with odds ratios, whereas the case control or sorry, cohort studies are usually paired up with your um, relative risk, whereas case control studies are usually paired up with odds ratios. So just remember that for the exam. That's right. Associate those closely in your mind. And you might be wondering, why would we ever choose to do a case control study? I mean, we've said that relative risks are more informative than odds ratios, and only prospective cohort studies can give us relative risks. Why choose the case control study? Well, the answer is that for certain outcomes, uh, it's more convenient to use a case control study. It would be impossible to do a prospective cohort study on outcomes that are very rare or outcomes that happen a very long time after the initial exposure. So instead of you know enrolling these patients and then waiting 20 years for a half percent of them to get the outcome, it's more convenient to just pick people who we know have the outcome today and look back in time. 
Right. So a randomized controlled trial, like we said earlier, is an experimental study when the researchers are actively changing a variable for one defined group of patients. And specifically for randomized controlled trials, the allocation of patients to one group or the other is theoretically totally random. This should make both groups the exact same at the start of the experiment, removing all confounding factors and allowing us to see only the effect of the variable that we are changing. So Megan, uh, often when we talk about randomized controlled trials, we say like they're single blinded or they're double blinded. What does this mean? In a single blinded trial, the subjects don't know which arm they are in, but the experimenters do. Whereas in a double blinded trial, neither the subjects nor the experimenters know which arm they're in or which arm the subjects are in. So obviously a double blinded trial is going to be the better one that um, doesn't have, that has the least amount of bias. Right, less prone to bias, but obviously more difficult to do logistically. Um, okay, let's say that we have uh, a set of prospectively collected cohort data from two groups. Um, perhaps we'll say group one received open surgeries and group two received laparoscopic surgeries, and, and we want to compare the two groups. Although we didn't conduct a randomized control trial, you know, these are this is just cohort data, prospective cohort data. What is an increasingly common way, Megan, to attend? to make these two groups similar to simulate the balance that could be achieved between the groups in a randomized control trial? We see this a lot in studies. It's propensity score matching. So in this method, for each subject, we calculate a score that is the likelihood that the subject would have received the intervention. So in this case, we'd say the likelihood they would receive a laparoscopic surgery instead of an open surgery. And this is based on all of their data, like comorbidities. Then we selectively form the two groups so that each group ends up having subjects with similar propensity scores. This ultimately reduces the differences between the two groups and brings the analysis closer to being a randomized control trial, though it's never as good as the real thing. So final random question about study de designs for you, because um, I've seen this on tests before, but what is a crossover study? Yeah, sometimes this confuses me, but um, I don't know why. The name is pretty self-explanatory. Uh, crossover study is where each subject serves as their own control by switching interventions during the study, like halfway through the study. So each subject crosses over. It's a good way to um, increase the efficiency of a study. You need have as many patients. And to recall something that we said earlier, what sort of statistical analysis would be kind of similar to a crossover study? Right. So across, so uh, not all the time, but, but a crossover study is typically amenable to a paired t-test because you're measuring multiple things in patient in the same patient, you know, before and after intervention. And so that would often be used for this kind of study. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right. Um, shift gears uh, now. Let's talk about the FDA drug development phases model. Magna, can you take us through the, uh, the phases of FDA drug approval? Yeah, so it's always rigorous. We start with the preclinical studies. These are usually the animal studies, the basic science bench research. Once we get to clinical trials, we start with phase one. So this is where you take a small number of healthy subjects to study the pharmacology and side effects. And then you move on to phase two, where you take a small number of disease subjects and study the efficacy of the drug or the intervention to establish the optimal dosing or regimen. Then there's the phase three. And so this is a randomized control trial comparing the drug to existing therapies. And then finally, you get to phase four, um, which is the ongoing trials after FDA approval to identify any long-term effects. So um, the way I like to remember this kind of easily is phase one is, is it safe? Phase two is, does it work? Phase three is, is it better than what's currently out there? Perfect. Perfect. All right. We're going to shift gears again a little bit here. Um, on the test, you may have to answer questions uh, that ask you to calculate different sorts of statistical terms like sensitivity, positive predictive value, risk, ratios, etc. A podcast episode, not the best format for spewing out equations. But again, if you purchased our Behind the Knife AppSite companion book from Amazon, it's a very handy table that should give you what you need. That being said, I think there are a couple quick hits um, in this topic that are amenable to being verbalized. I think it will help to, uh, to have you hear it. So here's one. Remember that the number needed to treat is the number of subjects that you would need to intervene on to give the treatment to in order to avoid one instance of the bad outcome you're trying to prevent. So if the number needed to treat was 15, it means that you got to treat 15 people for one person to, to have the benefit that you're looking for. You can calculate the number needed to treat by taking one divided by the absolute risk reduction. And sometimes they'll just give you what the absolute risk reduction is, but if you need to calculate it, reference the book. Um, so, Megan, uh, what is the difference between sensitivity and specificity? So sensitivity tells you the chance that a diseased person will come up positive on the test. The specificity tells you the chance that a non-diseased person will test negative. So throwback to step one, spin and snout is a mnemonic that we use. So spin means that specific tests are good for ruling in diseases. And snout means that sensitive tests are good at ruling out diseases. Can you give us some real life examples of this? Oh, yeah. Classic example that we certainly love to talk about is urine and plasma metanephrines, both biochemical tests for pheochromocytoma. Plasma metanephrines are very sensitive, but not very specific. What does this mean exactly? Again, for a sensitive test, if the patient has a pheochromocytoma, then the plasma metanephrine is very likely to come up positive. But remember, it's not very specific. So if the patient doesn't have a pheo, then there's a significant chance that he may erroneously come up positive on the test. Because it's sensitive, it's a good screening test. If the patient tests negative, there's a negligible chance he has FIA. We can rule it out. Remember, snout. 
But if he tests positive, we don't have high enough confidence either way. Maybe he's got a FIO, maybe he doesn't. We'll need a specific test to rule it in. Spin, that would be the urine metanephrine. So sometimes it's pretty confusing the difference between sensitivity, specificity versus positive and negative predictive values. What are these predictive values? Yeah, this this is a really critical point, and, and it can be confusing. Um, so let, let's start by comparing sensitivity and positive predictive value because they're related but but different. So again, like you said, sensitivity means given a person is diseased, what is the chance they will test positive? The positive predictive value, on the other hand, means given that somebody tested positive, what is the chance they have the disease? Um, and similarly, the negative predictive value is the chance that somebody who tested negative Negative is actually negative. And, you know, we often talk about sensitivity and specificity, but in fact, it's more often predictive values that get at what we really want to know when we send a test to the lab. When I test a patient, I'm not asking myself, hmm, assuming this patient has the disease, what's the chance the test will come back positive? No, what usually happens instead is that I see a test result has resulted positive, and then I ask myself, what is the chance that this test is correct and the patient actually has the disease? That is the positive predictive value. Great. So again, you know, mathematical expressions um, that allow you to calculate sensitivity, specificity, predictive values, et cetera, those are all in our companion book. Go check it out. But to kind of round things out here, um, let's talk about biases. We're often asked to identify based on the paragraph or the statement, what type of bias is there. We're not gonna go through the exhaustive list because there's a lot of types of biases. I would recommend just doing practice questions because they'll show up, but there's ones that are kind of confusing. So what is the difference between the lead time and the length time bias? They sound very similar. They do. And they and, you know, lead and length and time, they all seem to do with time. It confuses me all the time. Um, but uh, here's how I break it down. So, you know, let's say you have a cancer screening test that you uh, start using and you notice that patients who ultimately get the cancer are now living longer after you started screening them. So you may infer that screening is beneficial, but uh, what may actually be happening is simply that you're diagnosing the cancer earlier. So it only appears like they're living longer. So that would be lead time bias. And I try to remember this by thinking that we are getting a lead on diagnosis, but it's not actually affecting survival. On the other hand, let's say you have a cancer screening test that you start using and you notice that patients who ultimately get the cancer are now becoming cured more often. Now, you may infer that screening is beneficial because it's um, allowing patients to uh, get diagnosed earlier and, and therefore get cured more effectively. But what might actually be happening is simply that your screening test is only detecting or mostly detecting the benign variants of this cancer, variants that the patients would have survived with or without screening. That would be called the length time bias. This often happens in cancer screening tests because cancers that are more deadly are more likely to progress rapidly and produce symptoms that cause the patient to go in and get a diagnostic test and thus never really you know, have a need or a chance to undergo routine screening. So Megan, what about surveillance bias? What is that? 
Surveillance bias happens when we believe that a disease is becoming more prevalent in the world, but in reality, all that is happening is that we are testing for the disease more frequently, and therefore we are detecting more people who would otherwise have gone undiagnosed. So you could think of our adrenal nodules that we see all the time, that definitely introduces a surveillance bias. Absolutely. Lots of people getting CT scans in the emergency room. Can we really say that, uh, you know, adrenal masses are becoming more common? Probably not. Um, okay. Finally, what is allocation bias? Allocation bias occurs to a trial when you don't randomize your groups or you fail to use a good randomization technique. So basically, it's a systematic difference in how you are assigning subjects to the different groups, which can introduce confounding factors into the study. Great. Well, um, that's it, guys. Wanted to keep this one short and sweet. I know that as surgeons, we don't really like to spend too much time thinking about biostatistics. But, you know, there's always a few questions on this every year on the app site. And to be honest with you, it's a very finite pool of things they ask about. So do yourself a favor and uh, and review uh, the section on biostatistics in our app site companion review book uh, that you can find on Amazon right before the app site. Just knock those questions out when you see them. Eat yourself that much closer to being on the uh, right side of two standard deviations. <laughs> okay, good luck, everybody, and keep on studying hard out there. Almost done. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.